This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Of course, we'll be talking about impeachment today. Later in the show, I'll ask Jeet here of The Nation magazine about the Republicans' defense of Trump, that Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, really was corrupt in his dealings in Ukraine, and that he really did influence his father's work as vice president. And so Trump was right to ask the president of Ukraine for more information. Also, historian Eric Foner talks about voter suppression and the right to vote, about who gets to be a citizen, and what rights undocumented immigrants have, and about the history of mass incarceration, and how they all relate to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, part of the country's attempt to redefine citizenship after the end of slavery. His new book is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. But first, could the Republican defense of Trump in the impeachment proceedings open the door to a watershed victory for Democrats across the board? Trump Watch starts right now. Even before Nancy Pelosi finally agreed that it was time to begin impeachment proceedings, the Democrats' prospects for a sweep of the 2020 elections were good. That's what Stan Greenberg says. He's a longtime pollster and advisor to Democratic presidents from Clinton to Obama. He's also a best-selling author with a new book out. It has the wonderful title, R.I.P.G.O.P., How the New America is Dooming the Republicans. We spoke with him about the 2020 election before impeachment proceedings began and started by talking about the political divide in America. The Democratic coalition, of course, includes younger people, women, people of color, and immigrants, unmarried, secular, and urban people. I asked Stan Greenberg, how did Trump defeat them in 2016? The key to to Trump winning was the fact that he built his base with the Tea Party um, inside the Republican Party. That's how he, you know, that's how he got the nomination. He built an alliance with evangelicals, and that gave him about half the party. If you look at the primary, about half the voters were with him. But it was it was a party divided, and genuinely split, you know, with the rest of the party, with McCain, you know, McCain secular conservatives uh, and moderates who were socially liberal. He, you know, he won the, the Tea Party base because he, he hated the, the, uh, the changes we're talking about more than anyone else. He showed how much he hated Obama. He was a birther. And he battled, he battled against the New America. He showed he, he, showed he qualified you know, to, you know, to leave, the, uh, leave this party. But it meant throwing himself off a, off a cliff, running in the most extreme possible way against government, against immigration, ultimately, um, as, as a social conservative. But he was leading a smaller and smaller party. And so if you look right now, he's driven out the, the social conservative, the secular conservatives, the moderates. In like, we had a 10 point shift since 2018 as he's driven those voters out. But he now has a 70% base. He had half before, but now the party has defined his base as 70% of the party. He's become more and more extreme, more and more anti-government, more and more anti- anti-immigration, um, and as a result, producing trends that uh, make the Democratic win even more likely. 
I want to go back just for a minute to 2016 and Hillary's unexpected loss, which I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about. We all have. I think probably your most important chapter in your book, R.I.P.G.O.P., is about why Hillary lost. The 2016 election should not have been close. Why did she lose? How could the Democrats lose Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin? A tragedy, obviously. Uh, the um, and it was and the what I do write about in the uh, how much you know they didn't campaign there. They didn't respect working people there. You know, it's bigger than uh, you know bigger than that because at the heart of losing these uh, voters is what's happening with working people. Uh, and if you look at the recommendations I'm making here, they they very much center on not just having a politics that, you know, build, builds with, you know, understanding them and, and uh, building forward. But the, this was a campaign that declined to make working people or the economy uh, center stage. She, um, in, in her book, she says, Stan was critical that, that I didn't, you know, wasn't tough enough on the economy. And I talked to the economy all the time, she said. I was definitely wrong in that. The economy was like central to what I was talking about. Well, the problem wasn't she wasn't talking about it. It was what she was saying. Um, she said, like President Obama, build on the build on the progress. And they saw an economy that was uh, that was moving in the right direction. Jobs have been created. In, you know, incomes up. Poverty coming down. That's you know that's just she closed her election. Now we you know, I had no idea that she you know would close the campaign. With this idea that we were, this was a, we were building on success. We were got rid of the whole idea that we were changed. We were totally the status quo. And you know, she ran on, on continuity. Uh, and that, uh, but what we find is that President Obama, almost everybody living in the uh, metropolitan areas, missed what was happening over that decade. Not you, obviously, not us. Uh, but since the financial crisis, loss of wealth, loss of income created a country where, where the leaders continually just misjudge uh, what's happening in the country, including President Trump, you know, who will be defeated again on, you know, talking about how good the economy is and how good wages are. No, they're big structural changes um, that demand change. You have some unforgettable data in your book, uh, R.I.P.G.O.P. The one that struck me was uh, on this issue of understanding working-class people, how many unmarried women cannot pay for an emergency that would cost $500? You say it's a majority. A majority of unmarried women cannot pay $500 if an emergency came up. That's right. I, you know, I, I actually put that graph you know, right up front in that chapter, but I also put it right up front after they lost um, in, the, in the poll I did right after the election. When I would say build on the progress, what are you talking about? <laughs> the people who are the most vulnerable, but keep mind, a quarter of the electorate is not a small section. When we're talking about unmarried women, you know, who can't who can't afford a five hundred dollars, and that's why they were responsive to the leaders who were who understood you know, who understood that despair. So the new America reemerged in 2018 in the midterm elections with 
you know, voters mobilized by outrage about Trump. You think that mobilization will continue in November 2020, but aren't midterm elections usually quite different from presidential elections? You know, life has been changed by uh, by President Trump. You know, just as I got up every day to write, uh, write this book, people got involved all across, you know, across the, uh, the country and organizations, the resistance. Indeed, I dedicate the book to the resistance and, you know, and to the women's march, uh, you know, where this started. And that's actually what's so different and why the rising American electorate and the inevitability of the demographics is a different, different phenomenon that we're a different country. That is, people are organizing, they're active, they're becoming conscious. And that's what, you know, what happened is that Trump's, uh, Trump's election produced a new consciousness, engagement. You have some other very important data about current public opinion on two crucial political questions. Should the government be more active in addressing our problems and immigration benefits the country, agree or disagree? These are, of course, Trump's two central themes. What's the evidence on what Americans think about this right now? On whether government should be uh, more involved or whether uh, we should depend on individuals and business, we've seen the surge of people wanting the government to be active, uh, to do uh, to do more. You know, over 60% the opposite of what is happening. So as people watch this attempt to suffocate government, which is what the Tea Party Republican Party has done, the, the public is saying, no, we want more activist government. And the other is immigration. Uh, when Trump was elected, half the country said immigration, uh, immigration benefits the country. That's now jumped to 65%. And we're tracking new polling. It's showing an increasing every day believe that immigration benefits the country. This, this is a real pushback to the administration because they are becoming more and more virulent in how they're dealing with immigration. Countries are becoming more pro-immigration in, uh, in response. But the other is them being engaged. The off-year election in 2018 was the highest turnout in the history of off-year elections. We have a measure on a one to 10 scale how closely you're follow, following politics, 10 being you're following it extremely, you know, extremely close. Ten on that scale in 2018 in November hit the highest point that we had reached. This was the highest turnout election. It matched the presidential number we had in 16, which had been the highest. Okay. But after the election, in every election, in any poll I've ever done, we, that number goes down. People pull back and then come back month after month, and then it goes up again at the very end. Well, that number has gone up 10 points since the 18 election. Wow. There's been a 10-point increase in engagement since the 18 election. So people become, have a more engaged, more consolidated behind the Democrats, more pro-immigration every day, more pro-government every day they watch. So it's not inevitability. It's a it's in it's mobilization, engagement, public consciousness of, of their values. The engagement of politics is producing a new uh, a new electoral map because it keeps accelerating against the Republican Party that becomes even more extreme and more marginalized. Uh, it makes it hard for the Republican Party to come off it 
uh, in a way to, to rebuild the party. Okay, so we have increasing mobilization. We have the inevitability of the demographic forces that are benefiting the Democratic Party. But we also have divisions in the Democratic Party. You know all about the divisions in the Democratic Party. Tell us about what the big ones are right now. Uh, I think partly the elites aren't reading uh, the, the country and aren't reading the Democrats right. Every time there's a debate, you know, you have, you know, the fraught commentary on, oh, my God, we're driving away moderate vo- uh, voters. You know, we're running for, you know, the, uh, the base and therefore we're going to lose independence. But that's missing what happened after this uh, uh, 2018. It's also, but it's also missing the fact that Democrats have become more, you know, more determined that government play a large role, but so have all voters. And there's now a huge amount of support for government playing a, you know, a bigger role dealing with the environment, dealing with climate, climate change, dealing with inequality, dealing with health care, even within, within the health care debate, you know, on the debate stage. Everybody, indeed including Biden, was not talking about minor changes in the Affordable Care Act. He wasn't even quite conscious of how much change he was proposing. Everybody on that on that stage was talking about dramatically more, uh, dramatically larger government role in uh, in healthcare, which is now just taken for granted, and I believe politically uh, effective and helpful. And do you argue not just that Trump will lose in 2020, but that he will bring about? You're quite clear about this: the death of the Republican Party as we know it right now. So politics in Washington starting in 2021 will look more like California, where the Democrats have majorities in in both branches of Congress and in the executive. But aren't there a lot of places in America where the Republicans will win no matter what? The red states? Yes. I mean, you can't look, you can't change the Constitution and that they can be a successful party, you know, you know, in those states. But losing control, you know, nationally, has a has a huge uh, cost for their coalition, uh, and we'll see how long they're willing to be out of power, you know, na- uh, nationally. They are fighting the social modernization, you know, of the country. They're fighting sexual revolution in their current budget <laughs> of the federal government. They are trying to get rid of sex education. Their battle, uh, you know, against the Affordable Care Act. The suit to the Supreme Court was on contraception. You can't stop stop the growing diversity, the growing multiculturalism, uh, and all of that is moving forward at, at great bank speed. They are fighting it, fighting back. They're producing a party which is concentrated only in the most socially conservative and anti-government, anti-immigrant part of the uh, part of the electorate, um, and they can't survive nationally as a party. They're only going to get smaller. This, you know, this, this, this embankment within the Republican Party only gets a smaller and smaller piece as they go off the cliff and get defeated in this election. We need an economy that works for everyone, not just the rich and well-connected. That should be the message in 2020, says Stan Greenberg, longtime Democratic pollster and strategist. His indispensable new book is R.I.P. G.O.P., How the New America is Dooming the Republicans. Stan, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, and I really do think this is a transformative moment.
it's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. In the impeachment proceedings, which have now begun, the House Judiciary Committee is considering whether the president should be tried by the Senate and removed from office because he wanted to trade military aid to another country for dirt on a political opponent. For comment, we turn to Jeet here. Of course, he's National Affairs Correspondent for the Nation. Jeet, welcome back. Good to be here. Of course, the question that some Republicans are raising is, what if Hunter Biden really was engaged in corruption in Ukraine? Why would it be wrong for Trump to find out more about that from Ukraine's president? There's two things that have to be said about that. One of which is that this uh, matter has been investigated by journalists uh, repeatedly, and what they found so far is that Joe Biden is not implicated at all. There's no evidence whatsoever that anything Joe Biden did was uh, shaped by his son's work in the uh, in Ukraine. On the other hand, there's this whole idea of like you know appearances, and it does look very bad that Hunter Biden, you know, the son of a senator, the son of a vice president, has had a long career working as a lobbyist and then worked uh, for this uh, Ukrainian business company and has other sort of foreign entanglements. And um, unfortunately, this is very common in America, you know, where like uh, there always seems to be jobs for the children of powerful people. Uh, you know, like yeah, Megan McCain is on The View for no discernible reason. <laughs> and th- that's unfortunate. I mean, like uh, Hunter Biden, uh, I would encourage the listeners to look up the uh, profile on The New Yorker. He's a very colorful person who's had like a long and kind of storied history. And to be honest, you know, like I wouldn't trust him to run a candy store, let alone be on the board of a company. So it's the, the fact that he benefited from his name is tr- is troubling. Uh, but that's very distinct from anything Joe Biden might have done. And why do people say this seems like Trump's biggest scandal? Wasn't obstruction of justice in the FBI investigation of Russian interference in the election bigger? What about all the ways he makes money from foreign governments off his hotels? That's a violation of the emoluments clause of the Constitution. Aren't those bigger? I mean, all the obstruction of justice stuff, even if he did as president, you know, the, the root is stuff he did for the uh, election in 2016. And in some ways, this is a reprise of the allegations of the 2016 election that he sort of consorting with a foreign power for his election benefit, but he's doing it while president. So there's, a, there's an abuse of presidential power, and that seems to be on a scale much bigger than any previous accusation. And in fact, I think in a lot of ways, it's uh, I would definitely say it's bigger than Watergate. Like, it, it's just a, a huge misuse of presidential power in the most corrupt way possible. And I would add, he is doing it personally himself, which was never clear from Russiagate or the emoluments yes, issues. Yes. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In other words, he had some sort of plausible deniability because it was the actions of his idiotic children. Uh, But uh, yeah, I think, uh, and I think there's a further aspect, which is that if he did get a favor, or even if it was just like sort of, you know, this offer he made to the uh, Ukrainian president, you still have the fact that he's compromised the presidency so that the uh, president of the Ukraine has knowledge of Trump that can be used against him, right? So he's compromised the presidency as well and opened it to blackmail. 
So let's switch now and talk about the politics of the impeachment inquiry. Of course, there are a lot of reasons not to do this, which we've heard many times. Some of our friends say, what's the point of an impeachment inquiry in the House? Removing Trump from office requires a two-thirds vote in the Senate. The Senate Republicans are never going to do that. So this is a big waste of time, and really we should be spending our time talking about the positive things that a Trump successor will do, Medicare for all, free college tuition, a $15 minimum wage. This is what's really important. This is what the Democrats should make their lead ideas. Isn't this the best way to remove Trump from office? I'm not unsympathetic to that in the sense that I always think it's better to argue for what you're going to do rather than like depend on scandals. But the fact is that Trump is trying to interfere with the election and trying to sort of corrupt the election. So you can't like say, well, we need an election to solve Trump if he's also corrupting the election at the same time. There's a quote from Trump who said on Monday, if a Republican ever did what Joe Biden did, referring to corruption in the Ukraine, if a Republican ever said what Joe Biden said, they'd be getting the electric chair right now. Close quote. Uh, what do you make of that kind of talk? Well, it's the usual kind of, you know, crackpot, uh, threatening language that Trump uses. Um, but it's also very much part of his strategy that he's used successfully so far, which is that if he's ever accused of corruption, it's not so much he didn't do it. It's like, well, the other side is bad as well, you know? Like, it's the uh, but her emails argument. Jeet here writes about Trump's biggest scandal for thenation.com. Jeet, thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, good to be here, as always. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about rights, voting rights, birthright citizenship for the children of immigrants, the right of minorities to equal protection. All of those rights come not from the Bill of Rights in the Constitution. Instead, they resulted from the Civil War and Reconstruction, which expanded our rights dramatically. For that history, we turn to Eric Foner. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian who teaches at Columbia. He writes frequently for the New York Times op-ed page and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. He's written many award-winning books. The new one is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. Eric Foner, welcome back. Good to talk to you, John. Well, today we live in a time, this is a quote, when principles which we all thought to have been firmly and permanently settled are being boldly assaulted and overthrown. Who said that? Was it Joe Biden? <laughs> no, it was Frederick Douglass in the 1890s who was commenting on the rollback, as they call it nowadays, of so many of the rights that African Americans had achieved uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War. This was when the right to vote was being taken away from black men, when black education in the South was being starved of money. So Douglas was pointing out a basic fact, which is that rights can be gained and rights can be taken away. And my book talks about 
putting powerful new rights into the Constitution, but then later many of those rights being abrogated with the acquiescence of the entire nation and the Supreme Court. Well, the rights we're talking about here are the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, the 14th Amendment established birthright citizenship and equal protection, and the 15th put the right to vote in the Constitution. We call these the Reconstruction Amendments. They were all passed after the Civil War to deal with the issues raised by the Civil War, which is why the first one, the 13th, abolished slavery. But Congress didn't stop there. Why not? Well, first of all, abolishing slavery, of course, is a great achievement for humanity and the the American uh, Republic, but it doesn't tell you what is going to come after slavery. What are the rights that these four million emancipated slaves are going to enjoy? What role will they play in American society? Will they be citizens? Will they be uh, equal citizens? Will they have a political voice? So, in a sense, what follows the 13th Amendment is trying to work out the consequences of the 13th Amendment the consequences of the abolition of slavery in this country. The 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment, as you said, establish the citizenship of black people, establish the equality before the law of all people in the United States, and gave black men the right to vote, which very, very few had enjoyed in the period before the Civil War. All three Reconstruction Amendments empowered Congress to enforce their provisions But didn't all amendments to the Constitution do that? Uh, No, they didn't. Uh, In fact, in many parts of the Constitution, the enforcement mechanism is very uh, unclear. The Bill of Rights, which establishes, you know, most of our basic civil liberties, does not have an enforcement clause. It's not clear who's supposed to guarantee our freedom of speech or trial by jury, etc. So these three enforcement clauses, as you say, at the end of each of the three amendments, were actually a major departure. They, Congress wanted to make sure that they retained the power to kind of make sh- to be certain that these rights were being guaranteed. And if they, if they were being violated, Congress wanted the power to step in and uh, remedy the situation, as they tried to do uh, a good number of times during Reconstruction. And the big change here with previous amendments, especially the Bill of Rights, is the Bill of Rights restrains the power of the federal government. The 13th and 14th and 15th expand the power of government. The original Bill of Rights sort of sees government as the problem, to use a recent formulation. The Reconstruction Amendments take the opposite view, that government exists to advance and and defend our rights. Yes, uh, as Charles Sumner said, Uh, These amendments made the federal government the custodian of freedom. It's not just government, it's which government. The Bill of Rights restrains the national government. It begins with the words, Congress shall make no law. It restrains Congress from interfering with your freedom of speech, let us say. Uh, Before the Civil War, the Bill of Rights did not apply to the states. The states could suppress your freedom of speech. They did try to give a anti-slavery speech in South Carolina. They wouldn't allow that. But that wasn't a violation of the Bill of Rights because it wasn't the federal government doing that. Now, after the Civil War, 
this completely changes. It is that Congress is empowered. Congress shall have the power, not Congress shall make no law. And the states are the ones who are seen as a danger to liberty. The 14th Amendment says, you know, no state can deny you the equal protection of the law. Congress felt that the, because of slavery, because of the Civil War, because of the ideology of states' rights that had been so central to slavery, there was a need to empower the national government to protect the rights of citizens against violations in the states. Well, we're in a political season now, so let's look at the 15th Amendment establishing a right to vote. How come the right to vote was not in the original Constitution? Was that just an oversight? Well, the original states, uh, 13, wanted to be able to regulate the right to vote by themselves. And each state, even up to today, each state has different voter requirements. You know, whether in some states you have to have a certain kind of ID to vote, in some states you have to live there, have lived there a certain amount of time or not. The provisions of the Constitution in the amendments relating to voting are all sort of negative. 15th Amendment says you can't deny anyone the right to vote because of race. But there are many other grounds you can deny someone the right to vote. In Reconstruction, the radical Republicans wanted a positive amendment. They said, no, we want an amendment which uniformly gives every adult male, unfortunately not women in their view at that time, every adult male citizen should have the right to vote, and that's what the Constitution should say. Uh, If they had managed to do that, it would have solved a lot of problems that came later, including today with voter suppression laws. But the states, even northern states, wanted to keep their own voting requirements. So they didn't, the, the Republicans in Congress didn't feel they could get an amendment which created a uniform voting, uh, you know, system for the whole country. They couldn't get that ratified by three quarters of the states, which is necessary. The 15th Amendment establishes the right to vote in the Constitution for the, for the first time, and it doesn't mention women. On the other hand, it doesn't mention men either. It's just about race. There's nothing in the 15th Amendment that says you can't allow women to vote. And indeed, by the late 19th century, a number of states did allow women to vote. Remember, in 1860, on the eve of the Civil War, free African Americans could vote on the same, with the same qualifications as whites in only five states, all of them in New England and with very tiny black populations. They could not vote in Ohio. They could not vote in Pennsylvania. They could not vote in Illinois, Lincoln's home state. Uh, So enfranchising black men, even though there were limits to that amendment, was an amazing transformation in the body politic of the United States. And, of course, it led directly to the election of many, many hundreds of African-American men to public offices in the Reconstruction South. So it, it launched this experiment in interracial democracy, which was a very remarkable thing for, you know, 19th century America. Let's talk about the 14th Amendment. It guarantees equal protection of the laws. You said the 15th Amendment is for citizens. Is the 14th for citizens? Is Or does it give equal protection to children from Guatemala or Honduras who've been separated from their parents after crossing the border. Do they have any rights here in the land of the free? The language of the 14th Amendment, Section 1, is very interesting. On the one hand, it begins by talking about citizens. Any person born in the United States is a citizen. 
Now, the people you just mentioned who cross the border, they're not citizens because they were not born in the United States. They might in the future be able to become naturalized citizens. But if one of those people has a child in the United States, that child is a citizen. No question about it. That child born in the United States, it doesn't matter who the parents are. It doesn't matter what the legal status of the parents is. The child born in the United States is a citizen. And no state can take away the privileges and immunities of citizens, according to the 14th Amendment. It doesn't say exactly what those are. But later, it says no person can be denied equal protection of the law. No person. Person is a broader category than citizen. What's happening at the border now, however, is a little different because the 14th Amendment is mostly about states doing this. No state can deny you equal protection of the law. And all the reprehensible things going on at the border are being done by the federal government, not by the states. The ACLU is currently in court uh, litigating the question of whether people who cross the border, whether they have a right to a hearing, a right to some kind of due process from the federal government, even though they're not American citizens. You know, with the current Supreme Court, I'm certainly not willing to make a prediction as to how much credence will be given to the rights of these people. And, you know, one of the lessons, as we said before, of the whole Reconstruction period and its aftermath is that um, a conservative Supreme Court can um, can take away rights which people thought they uh, previously enjoyed. Okay, let's talk about the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery But I thought Lincoln abolished slavery with the Emancipation Proclamation. You say the Emancipation Proclamation was the largest act of slave emancipation in world history. Everybody knows Lincoln freed the slaves. Is is everybody wrong? They're partly right and partly wrong. The Emancipation Proclamation declared free about 3.2 million slaves. That's more than any other single act like that in in history that I'm aware of. But there were still about three quarters of a million who were not covered by the Emancipation Proclamation. These were the slaves in the four border states, uh, Delaware, Kentucky, Maryland, Missouri, that remained in the Union. They did not join the Confederacy, even though they were slave states. And therefore, the proclamation, which was a military measure against the Confederacy, did not apply to them. And Lincoln also exempted some parts of the South. So you have three-quarters of a million who are not declared to be free on uh, January 1st, 1863. Uh, The other point, though, is that freeing individuals, even large numbers of them, doesn't end slavery. Slavery is created by state law, and those laws have to be repealed to really abolish the institution of slavery or superseded by a constitutional amendment, which is what eventually happens. I am not in any way trying to minimize the importance of the Emancipation Proclamation, which changed the character of the Civil War very dramatically, but it did not end the institution of slavery. There's some fine print in the amendment abolishing slavery that most of us hadn't noticed until the last few years. Where is slavery permitted in the United States? Well, it says uh, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime. Prisoners can be subject to involuntary labor. Now, at the time the 13th Amendment was passed, uh, very few people noticed it at all. It was almost like boilerplate language. 
that language was in the constitutions of most states at that time, North and South, the idea of prisoners working. You have to remember that there were very few prisoners at that time. This was not mass incarceration or anything like that. There were tiny numbers of prisoners and prisons. And, you know, some states thought, well, they should work to help pay the cost of the prison. But what happens, of course, and tragically, is that after the end of Reconstruction, the southern states use this to create a giant system of convict labor. They lease out convicts, almost all of them black, not all, but the vast majority black. They lease them out to uh, work on plantations or mines under terrible conditions. Uh, many of them die. Uh, and, of course, it's on involuntary labor. They're not paid or anything like that. They have no uh, <laughs> right to complain about their working conditions. That's all allowed by the courts because of this prisoner exemption in the 13th Amendment. At the time, nobody virtually even noticed it. You read all the debates in Congress. It's barely mentioned. You read the press debates about the 13th Amendment. Very, very few newspapers uh, even noticed it. And most historians have pretty much ignored, including me, I have to admit, me too. Have, have ignored it until very recently when mass incarceration, of course, is the major public issue. And then a few years ago, there was that documentary 13th, which exposed the extent of prison labor at, at the moment. You've described how the ambiguity that was written into many of the Reconstruction Amendments opened the door to decades and centuries in more than a century of conflict over the meaning of terms like equal protection and the right to vote. Don't you wish the people who wrote the Reconstruction Amendments had done a better job? Uh, no, I don't, actually. I think it's good that they, they wrote in terms of general principle, not specific rights. Because if you start listing specific rights, you may miss some that, that are not important when you are writing, but become... For example, the most famous... 14th Amendment decision of the Supreme Court recently was the gay marriage decision. Denying people the right to marry, states denying people the right to marry because of sexual orientation is a violation of equal protection of the law. Well, the people who were writing the 14th Amendment in 1866 were not thinking about gay marriage, right? That was not on the political agenda at that time. Um, so if they had begun just listing all sorts of rights, they would have certainly left that out. But what they did was put these general principles into the Constitution, which have expanded enormously in the 20th and into the 21st century. They weren't really thinking about equal rights for women, but the language of equal protection allowed people like Paulie Murray and Ruth Bader Ginsburg to use the 14th Amendment to attack laws that discriminated on the basis of gender. And that was totally plausible, given the general language of the uh, 14th Amendment. Also, people like John Bingham, who wrote the first section pretty much, they wanted to leave the door open to future expansions. They, they, they understood you can't predict what 50 years from now, 100 years from now, are going to be, you know, uh, is going to be on people's minds. But we can at least create a situation where the principle of equality can be applied. That's why they said Congress will have the power to enforce this. Fifty years later, Congress may think, well, there's a different you know, issue here, but the principle of equality can be enforced with regard to it. So actually, I think the ambiguity is a good thing, and it, it's a source of power. If we ever get a better Supreme Court, which maybe we will one of these days, 
there's a lot of latent power in those three amendments that have never been used really by the courts, which could allow a more vigorous protection, particularly of racial justice in this country, than the courts have allowed in the last uh, 30 or 40 years. Eric Foner, his terrific new book is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. Eric, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me on, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.